Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you now to take them out and turn in them to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. While you're doing that, I just want to say thank you very much for all of the many kindnesses that you have shown to my family this last week, especially, but I mean, all 10 years. This has been awesome. We're so grateful to the Lord for you. We always will be. Ridgeview Bible Church will always have a very special place in my heart. But thank you for all the people who came out and helped us move uh, to load our big truck up a couple times. And <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell the story. <laughs> but and then all the other things, the inviting us out to eat and um, visiting with us and encouraging us and the text messages and the I'm praying for you uh, messages that we've received. It's been uh, very, very encouraging to us as a family. So here we are, Ecclesiastes, and our text today is chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to pray. So the Word of God says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. They are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Father, we pray that you would be big in this place today and in our hearts. We pray indeed that you would become the pivot around which our whole life circles in our church. Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your word today. I pray that now that the end of the matter, that all has been heard, I pray that we would listen and we would respond. And Lord, I I pray that you would uh, make much of your name today. This this, This time is not about any one of us. It is about you. And Lord, we want to exalt in you today. We want to hear your word and let it shape our lives so that we can go forth from this place, making much of Christ in everything that we do. And as my brother prayed, I pray that you would make many, you would make new worshipers this morning. Open eyes, Lord, to your gospel and to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and in him alone. I pray for your help this morning. And Lord, I thank you for Ridgeview Bible Church. I thank you for this group, this body of Christ that loves you, loves your word, loves one another. I pray that you will continue to richly bless her with unity, with godliness, with faithfulness, with joy, with a passion for the lost. In this next little while, Lord, I pray that you'd help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, mysterious crop circles began to turn up in England. Do you remember this? Anyone old enough to remember this and care to admit it? 
walking in the field, this, these things were like making all the news and walking in the field, no one, you couldn't tell, like if you're in a, a wheat field that's usually this high, you can just tell that some of the grass in front of you is, is laid down in a certain way. And it's weird. Like, why is this, why is this wheat, why is this pushed down like this? And obviously there's a pattern. So they flew over it with airplanes and they could see perfect circles all over, perfect circles. Uh, and it started happening all over England. All the wheat fields were happening in England like this. And then a couple in America. And then later on in America, a lot. But back then, it was mostly in England. Uh, so large, perfect circles of wheat in wheat. And the, the, the media made a huge deal of it. Like, there must be aliens that are landing, right? In perfect circular crafts. Uh, they just went nuts about it. Maybe there's a strange gravitational anomaly happening to the earth because of the moon. Uh, maybe there's odd wind patterns because of climate change. I once remember asking my very no-nonsense grandmother what she thought of it. You know, like, how did these great, big, perfect circles appear in these wheat fields? And she just rolled her eyes and looked at me like I was super silly and said, a few teenagers with a rope and a stake went out at night and made those circles. <laughs> And of course she was right. Pranksters went out into the night, into those fields, drove a stake into the ground, held on to a rope and walked around a big circle, making a big pivot, making a perfect circle. And they did that so that the media could make a big deal of it. So the masses would wonder if aliens have landed in Britain and, and so that wise grandmothers everywhere could roll their eyes. Looking at one of those circles from above, you could tell exactly where the center where the stake was driven in, right? It's the perfect center. That's where the stake was driven in. That's the pivot point, the center point, the center point of the circle. Everywhere one walked while holding on to that rope connected to that stake, they were walking in reference to that center point. Do you follow? That's like that center point governed where they would go, everywhere, whether they're on the north side of the circle, the south side, everywhere, it was governed by that center point that they were anchored to. I just want us to think of that as an illustration for where I believe this text is pointing us. In life, everyone has a center point. Everyone has a center point. For some, the center point is money. For others, it's pleasure or comfort. Still for others, probably for a lot of good Nebraska people that I know, it is family or work or community. Often the center point is a relationship either a real relationship, like uh, somebody that you genuinely have or somebody that you wish you had in your life. But everyone has a center point and it's like we have a rope tied to it. We hold on to that rope in our journey and everywhere we go, everything we do, every decision we make, the way that we organize our money, all of those things, they're all governed by that center point. You have a center point. I, think about it. What is the center point of your life? What is it that you are, like your life circles around and that's the main thing. The book of Ecclesiastes makes one big argument. Do not make anything other than the Lord your center point. Even good things, even good things like your work, even good things like your family or your marriage, they're not worthy candidates to hold the center of your heart. In fact, for all of those relationships to stay healthy, all of those things to be healthy, the Lord must be your center point. That's the case the preacher has made. And now with our passage, it's like he's sending up a drone, 
up into, above the field so that we can see the, the whole crop circle all at once. All has been heard. The end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. The question I want you to consider this morning is where your center point is. That's, where we're, that's what we're talking about this morning on this final Sunday in this series on Ecclesiastes as we wrap up this amazing, life-changing book. This is also, as you know, has been said already, it's my final sermon to you as a church, uh, at least as your preaching pastor. Um, and I cannot think of a more fitting way to wrap up 10 years of preaching, hundreds of sermons, walking through many books of the Bible together with you, spending thousands of hours prepping, praying to preach the word of God to you on Sundays. This is the end of the matter. This is the end for which we sit under God's word that we might look to Christ and not to anything or anyone else as the center point of all of life. That Christ might be the center point of this church. So I'm happy to preach this to you this morning. This is an appropriate passage to consider as the final sermon of this amazing book, a book that has rocked my world this summer. And I think it's an appropriate sermon to be my final sermon to you as a church. May the Lord use this for his glory in this place. There are two parts to this that I want us to consider, both from verse 13. First, I just, we, we, sh- we should review a little tiny bit because it says all has been heard. And he's basically saying the case has been made. Solomon's made his case, he's presented it. And so to give the, that phrase its full weight this morning, we should consider for a moment what it is that has been heard. And then his conclusion, the famous end of the matter, the parting command of this book what it means to fear God and obey his commandments. So let's dive into God's word one final time together, shall we? If I were to ask you one of the most important key words of the book of Ecclesiastes, what would be your guess? What is the key word of Ecclesiastes? Somebody yell it out. Vanity. The book literally begins and ends with that word. Ecclesiastes 1, 2 says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then, you know, you fast forward all the way through the book, you get to chapter 12, verse 8, and he repeats it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Those are the bookends of the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the verse that comes before Verse two of chapter one is just intro and everything that comes after verse eight of chapter 12 is just prologue. The whole thrust of the book of Ecclesiastes is centered on the word vanity. And as we have discussed several times, the Hebrew word means breath or wisp of smoke or vapor. It's the Hebrew word chabel. The preacher is using this word to help you and me see something that's really important about your life, about my life and about this world. His aim, I think, is to keep you from setting your center point on something that will not be worthwhile and on the positive side so that you might set your aim fully on what is actually worthwhile. So here are four vanities that have been heard. Four things that must not be our center point. There are more than this actually in this book, but I thought these four might be helpful. The first one is the vanity of work. You know, it is so easy and so common to find our identity in what we do, right? 
I mean, isn't that the first thing we find out about someone that we meet? Like, hey, what's your name? What is it that you do? I mean, that's the first thing we ask. What is it that you do? Identifying somewhat with the work of our hands, I don't think is a bad thing, but it can lead us to think that this is where the meaning of life is found. It's in what I do. We will find meaning in our work and producing things or being successful businessmen or building a large ranch. Our life's work can feel like the great like a great place to put our stake in the ground and just let all of our life circle around. Especially if what we do is good and noble. I, it, it just, it's easy for me as a pastor to center everything about who I am around being a pastor. Pastoring is a good thing. I know that. So it feels good to me to make that my center point. And the Lord has so challenged me in that this summer through Ecclesiastes. Way back in chapter one, Solomon calls it an unhappy business that he has given the children of men, of man. Because we do all of that work and we labor so hard only to grow old and die and be forgotten. Others will get what we toil to build. There's nothing lasting in our work in this world. It's all chabel. It's all a mere breath. So go ahead, build that huge ranch Really have something for your children to squabble about when you've died. Pastor that church, climb that corporate ladder, do whatever you do. Even if you do really well in 100 years, it's extremely likely that no one will remember the work that you did. Or you. In what sense would it be significant then? Do you see the chabel, the the vapor? It's there for a little while, real, and then gone. The point is, not to make the center point of your life your work. And I think that's practical. Your work is not the center of your life. My work as a pastor, your work as whatever you do, a stay-at-home mom, whatever you do, it's not the center. It can't be. You can't let it be. And of course, that's not to say that laziness or being undriven in life or unproductive or anything like that is good. In fact, he calls out laziness in this book. But it is to say that your work is not a good place to set your heart on. It's not a great place to find your identity. But maybe I'm addressing the wrong generation for that. Maybe. Maybe I'm addressing the wrong generation for that one. Some have said that the older generations, the the boomers, for example, forgive me if you're one of those, um, they live to work. That is, they, they really identified with making their center point their work. Who they were was what they did. More recent generations, my generation and down, have reversed that. We work to live. That is, work for us is a means to do the things that we really want to do, right? That we really find enjoyable. Work is the circle. It's in the circle. It's just not in the center of the circle. It's not the center point. Perhaps we saw in our parents the vanity of their work. We saw that they put all their efforts there. I mean, lots of children who barely saw their dads grow up as they were growing up because they were always in the office, they grew to resent that and decided that they would do things differently. Or to put it another way, they they saw the vanity of work. So they, or we, we put our stake in the ground in a different place, the center. Work's still important, but not ultimate, not central. Work is a means to accomplish what we really want to do in life, what really matters. So we work to enjoy life. We work so that we can afford to have fun as a family, to go on vacations, to do things, to have nice things. Work isn't who I am. 
Work is there so that I can be who I am and enjoy who I am. Do you follow? A lot of people have that worldview. Only a thousand, thousands of years ago, a very wise king already thought of that, tried that, and decided that that too is vanity. Solomon thinks that making pleasure or comfort your center point is vanity. It cannot be ultimate because it does not satisfy forever. It doesn't last forever. It cannot be enjoyed forever. Just like your work, your pleasure, and your comfort are a mere vapor. The big camping trailer, the new house, the, 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 the dreamt of, the long dreamt of retirement. It's all a breath. And I love the perspective of Ecclesiastes for its accuracy. The preacher doesn't say those things are bad. He doesn't say those things are bad. He's not, he's not saying it's bad to, to, to work or to enjoy pleasure or anything like that. In fact, he says the opposite. Pleasure and comforts and work, they're from the hand of the Lord. They're gifts from the Lord, meant as a blessing to be enjoyed. But they are not meant to be counted as gain. They are not to be the aim of your life. You maybe recall one Sunday I gave an illustration of a duffel bag. That, that worldview of, uh, of, of going through life, trying to put all the good things in this world in this great big duffel bag. You, you just want to stuff in this, these, you do everything you can. You, you walk around that stake so that your duffel bag can be nice and full. And, if, and, and in your mind, you think, man, if I have this full duffel bag full of pleasure and comfort and retirement and good things and money, family, then I'll have meaning. That's the meaning of life. It's what's in my duffel bag. But then the end comes. We, we die. We walk off the cliff and die. And, and those things are worthless. Pleasures and comforts are gifts. They're not gain. And if you make those things the center point, you are centering your whole life on a wisp of smoke. The third vanity we have heard in the book of Ecclesiastes is the vanity of power and influence. The preacher calls out oppression in chapter four. Desiring power over others is another crop circle people long to have in their search for true significance. But it's also a vapor. I mean, seriously, ask any dead dictator. It's a vapor. Ask any washed up social media influencer. Whatever. You know, God gives some people genuine influence over others. And that's important. It's significant. It's not, it's not fake. It's, but it is a vapor. It is a wisp of smoke. If God has given you influence, I think you should use that for his glory. But I do not think you should seek after that as if it is ultimate. Power and influence is also vanity, a shepherding of the wind. The next vanity, vanity number four, isn't in the same kind of category as those other three. It's more of a big picture vanity. It's, it's the vain attempt to make straight what God has made crooked. And it's another repeated theme in Ecclesiastes. We want straight now. Do you know what I mean? We want the picture perfect everything, but we're continually frustrated by the crookedness of it all. Even good things are crooked, friends. Even good things are crooked. Corrupted by sin and the curse. We want heaven now. We long for heaven now. We pursue heaven as if it could be had now in this life. But heaven is not now. Heaven is not now. This is not your best life. In that striving to make straight what is crooked, we, we see every bit of suffering as unjust and intolerable. Suffering makes no sense in a straight world. 
But this world is crooked. And here there is yet suffering to be endured by the people of God. Suffering makes sense now. We've talked so much about suffering of life as we've walked through this book. Last week we talked about the suffering of aging. uh, Several weeks ago, both Bert and I, Pastor Bert and I, preached sermons on the suffering of death. And the reality is, friends, that it's crooked now. It's a vanity to attempt to make straight, to have it straight in this life. It will never be. We cannot have heaven now. And your attempts to have it straight and perfect will only lead to frustration. Frustration in your relationships, frustration in your work, frustration in your home life, frustration in the surrounding circles of people and influence and connections and conflicts and all of those things. It won't be perfect. There will always be crookedness in your life. And that truth should make us long for Christ. That truth should make us long for his return when he comes and sets straight what is crooked. Finally and decisively, the work that he begun on the cross and from the empty tomb, he will come back and complete and make decisively straight what is crooked because of sin. The point is we must not look for it in this world as if there's some level of income, some season of health, some way to live, some circumstance that we could embrace so that what is crooked would finally be straight. There's not. You can only look to Jesus for that. So those are four of the just a sampling of the vanities in Ecclesiastes. And it's why so many people struggle with this book. So many people have shared with me that they struggle with this book. In fact, someone said just, just this week to me that Ecclesiastes is a discouraging book. I was super thankful that the person who said that hadn't sat under this preaching all summer long because that would be discouraging to me. But they said Ecclesiastes is a discouraging book. How do we make sense of everything in light of Ecclesiastes? If life is so meaningless, if it's, so, it's, a, it's such a vanity, how do we make sense of it all? And I think it's easy to get that perception from a quick read of Ecclesiastes. And that's, only, that's because Solomon is careful to tell us what not, what not to make the center point of our lives. But he does along the way point us to where our center point must be, right? Where true meaning and hope and joy and life are to be found. It's woven, it's woven throughout this book. It is God who has made everything beautiful in its time. It's God who gives sweet gifts to the children of men. It's God who gives pleasure and youth. It's God who puts eternity in the heart of man. It's God who gives us work to do. It's God, it's God. You see, the main purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is not simply to point out all the vanities of this life. That's actually not his main thrust. Even the vanity of our life, my life itself, the main point of Ecclesiastes, the main purpose is to show us what really matters in life, what really must be our center point. And I'll just give it away, friends. It's God through Jesus Christ. By the time we get to Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it is clear God is the one we must fear. Look with me again at that verse. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Oh, actually, I think we should first consider the verse right before that. Let me 
rewind a little bit. Uh, look at verse 12. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of the making of many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. What's he saying there? Why, why do he say that right there? You wonder that? Why does, why does he say stuff like this? He's not saying that books are bad. He's not saying that reading is bad or study is bad. He is saying that people are going to write all kinds of books that promise that you can find the meaning of life somewhere other than Christ alone. And that makes us super relevant for our day today. Go to any self-help section in the library. I wanted to say bookstore there, but we don't have those anymore. Go to the library if they have self-help sections. Do they? There's a librarian here. Go find self-help books. They're everywhere. Everywhere. Of the making of them, there is no end. Everyone has an idea to sell you. Everyone has an idea to sell you. And the sales pitch is all the same. You buy this, your life is going to have meaning and purpose. If you just learn to manage your finances better or get out of debt, you will have meaning. If you just have less stress in your life, if you just learn how to manage your stress, your life will have meaning. If you just get organized, be more productive in your day, if you, if you just focus on fitness more, if you focus on positivity, you'll have meaning. And I could go on and on because the making of books about this, there is no end. The, the preaching of self-help sermons, there's no end to those. But read Ecclesiastes first before you read any of those books or listen to any of those sermons because those books and those sermons and those trends might lead you to center your life on a wisp of smoke. A good thing that does not belong at the center of your heart, the center of your life. What Ecclesiastes teaches us is that true meaning is found in fearing the Lord. Many struggle with the idea of fearing God. Of course, it's a massive theme in the scriptures running throughout Ecclesiastes, running throughout the Old Testament, running throughout the New Testament. It's clear, I think I can make a very quick, I'm not going to do it this morning, but I can make a quick and easy case of it from the scriptures. We are called to fear God. Some struggle though, because fear seems to be a bad thing, right? Why should we fear God? And many in that struggle simply reduce fear to mere reverence. Like what he means is you should revere God. Some see it as fright. Some, some see God as out to get you and the fear means fright, but what I think it means is that we are to live all of life and do all that we do and decide all that we decide with God as the ultimate reference point. The very center of it all, one who fears God, sees God as the center of their circle and the center of the universe. It's to see God as ultimate and to live your life in reference to that reality, to live your life in light of him. And what does that look like practically to fear God? I think there's, there's a helpful clue right here in verse 13. It says, the verse says, fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing God is living in light of his demands on us. And what are those? Well, Jesus summed them up neatly for us, didn't he? Luke 10, 27 through 28 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have, uh, I got the wrong passage here. 
Well, I'm going to read the passage I have. It's not that one, but it's similar. I think it's in Matthew. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. That's what it looks like to fear the Lord. It looks like loving God with all of our hearts and souls and minds. And then flowing up from that, loving others. A man or a woman who fears God is one who radically loves God and radically loves others. That's what it looks like to make God the center point of your life. Look at the end of verse 13, back in Ecclesiastes. He says, this is the whole duty of man. The word duty actually is not in the original language. Translators have added it from the King James on because they think it's implied. It could be translated, this is the whole of man. And it seems to me that that's his point exactly. This is the whole of man. Yes, for sure, this is his whole duty. But this is also his whole purpose, his entire meaning in life, why he was created. This is the whole of man. This is the whole of you. This is the whole circle. And doesn't that make everything in Ecclesiastes make sense? Everything is vanity, everything Therefore, fear God and keep his commandments. Your life is a vapor. Your work is a vapor. Your relationships are vapor. Pleasure is a vapor. God is no vapor. So fear him. If you pursue anything else with all of your heart and your mind and your soul, you will waste your life shepherding the wind. But put God at the center and you will be satisfied in him forever. That, friends, is the message of Ecclesiastes. And it's a message that we can only fully make sense of. We can only fully read and understand on this side of the cross of Calvary. Only in Christ can we get the message of Ecclesiastes and apply it to our hearts. It is only by his grace. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again so that God would be the center point of your life. And so that you would find meaning and hope and life in him forever. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's a gospel message. It's basically look to Jesus and be saved. Saved from wasting your life. Saved from chasing the wind. Saved from centering everything in your life on a vanity, on a vapor. And even saved from judgment. I would be remiss if I failed to help you see the warning of this passage. It's the very last words of Ecclesiastes. Verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments because in him is life and joy and hope. And fear God because outside of him, outside of Christ, there is only the fearful prospect of judgment. And God judges perfectly. Even your secrets. Don't let that just fall off your ears. Don't let the warnings of the Bible like that just be nothing to you. Let it with fear and trembling and joy and hope lead you to Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. Consider your secrets and consider that one day you stand before God with those. Oh, how you need Christ. Oh, how I need Christ. So that is the end of the matter. 
The book of the Bible that I have found the most difficult to study, understand, and preach. Number one, it's Ecclesiastes. Hardest book for me ever. It all comes together in this really clear and helpful and practical message. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what this book is about. Consider how you should apply it, okay? What would it look like if your whole circle, your whole life circled around Jesus Christ? You know, that he wasn't like a part of your circle, but he was the very center of your circle. What would it look like for your pursuits in life? What would it look like for your direction? What would it look like for the way you handle your money? What would it look like for your relationships with other people? What would it look like for, your, for, for the way that you view church and the body of Christ? What would it look like to be a church that fears God this way? A church whose center point is Christ, the pivot of all of our lives together corporately, Jesus. Friends, this is the end of all I have hoped and dreamed for you and labored for among you. That we, that this church, Ridgeview Bible Church, would be a church that genuinely fears God. A church whose center is Jesus Christ, not a person, not some campaign, not some pursuit, but Jesus. And I think that's what Ecclesiastes, as is applied by the Spirit, must do in our hearts individually and as a church. Let me share with you one last thing and then I'll be done. A couple of weeks ago, I dug up my very first sermon that I ever preached here at Ridgeview Bible Church, July 14th, 2023. And I sent it to a few of you. I mean, 2013. And I sent it to a few of you. I, uh, I read it and it was nostalgic for me. I just thought it was kind of neat. In that sermon, I began and I ended with a guy named John Newton. He is a famous British pastor from the 1800s and one of the key figures of the abolition movement in England. Newton is probably best known for the hymn that he wrote. He wrote many hymns, but one of them stands tall among them. It's Amazing Grace. John Newton was the one who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton lived nearly half of his life with the center point being the world and its pleasures. Half of his life nearly. He ran a slave boat hauling human captives from the coast of Africa to places where they could be sold on slave markets. John Newton was a human trafficker. And he said himself, as he recounted what that lifestyle was like, that it was full of every kind of sin and debauchery. The man lived for himself and for money and for pleasure. He lived to oppress others for his benefit. But then God, then God, by his grace, opened Newton's eyes to the hope of the gospel. He opened his heart and his mind to Jesus Christ. He showed him the vanity of his life and the wonder and the joy and the glory of Christ. So Newton abandoned the slave trade. He helped to bring about the abolition of, the slave, of slavery in England and eventually in the world. And then he also served as a pastor for 40 years, preaching God's word to God's people. He saw what it looked like to make the world one's center point. 
And then he saw what it looks like to fear God. And so it is fitting, and these are my closing words here, it's fitting to remember Newton for his hymn, Amazing Grace, a wonderful hymn that, com- that, that contains this wonderful line. "'Twas grace that taught... "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It's God's grace that will teach you to fear God and God's grace alone in Christ. Come to him. Stop living for what is worthless. Don't waste your life. Father, we, I pray that you with your spirit and with the unction and the power that only the spirit have, has, that you would land this message on our hearts today and that we would quit playing games with you. Quit playing games with our lives and with our church and we would make Christ the center of everything and live for the glory of Christ. Would you do that work for us, Lord? And Lord, I, I, I praise you and thank you for this church.